Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello and welcome to this very special episode of Meet the Education Researcher. My name is Neil Selwyn and today we're featuring a conversation from an online seminar from right at the end of June 2020 between myself and Felicitas McGilchrist from the George Eckhart Institute in Germany and Ben Williamson from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. The three of us are all researchers in the area of digital education and so we spent 50 minutes looking back on the rise of educational technology, edtech, during the lockdown and the shift over to emergency remote schooling. These are the edited highlights and we've split the conversation up into four different parts. So first off, I asked Ben and Felicitas how the remote schooling had gone so far in their respective countries. Certainly it's been a lot of Google Classroom and Class Dojo and so on. I think parents have been put into a position where there's a kind of obligation to agree to be part of these platforms and to subscribe to these products and to give consent now if they haven't already so that they can participate in 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 G Suite uh, and so on. But I think some schools have been um, providing kind of daily lessons with the whole kind of Zoom teacher stuff. Here in the particular part of Scotland I live in, um, because of data protection concerns, teachers haven't had any video interaction with students whatsoever. So everything has been entirely mediated by Google Classroom or or the the equivalent with lots of children being sent off to various other uh, products and so on. So I don't think it's been particularly coordinated. And I don't think that's, that's not something I would want to criticise schools for i don't think schools have been supported at all well here in scotland i think what we saw in england was indicative a kind of um panic that there was no coordinated response um prior to the easter break back in april and then the sudden appearance of this kind of coalition of organizations with a brand new online school called oak national academy backed by organizations like Teach First and a range of foundations and so on. So I think this is, you know, one of, for me, one of the kind of big issues that's come out is that as parents and schools have cast around trying to figure out what to do, we've had the emergence of some perhaps unexpected new sets of alliances and groupings um, who've been able to provide at speed um, selections of resources. Some of that's coming from the big commercial providers who, you know, I think we probably would have predicted would move into this space really quickly. And some of it's come from more unexpected spaces like these new, you know, Teach First aspirations, um, trust, these kinds of groupings that have come together. And in the particular example of Oak National Academy, it um, very quickly managed to get support from the Department for Education, the, the main education ministry in England, who's kind of seed funded it. So it's been interesting language here about sort of government as a seed funder and an investor and so on. And we had very quickly a, a kind of national online school for, for England to try and settle these very, very kind of unsettled waters um, that, that people were floating around on uh, up, up to Easter. 
Um, I suppose it's quite interesting that this Oak National Academy, you know, it provided loads and loads of online lessons and so on, um, was just awarded this week a further £4.3 million to prepare for next year. Um, so it's going to expand with something like 10,000 lessons and a series of curriculum maps. But this completely unknown organisation that didn't exist three months ago will basically be the platform for the national curriculum for England next year in the result that schooling is happening in a in a hybrid kind of form or maybe taking place at home if we go back into some kind of lockdown and, and, and school closures. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, going back to the the Oak National Academy, that wasn't put out to tender, that £4.34 million. So it's either very yeah. innovative, speedy thinking, or what Australians might call a rort. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you can guess what that means. What I mean, what I found over in Australia is there's a huge gap between the private schools and the public schools. The private schools really did seem to be ready for this. And a lot of these have been really going in for synchronous lessons, five hours of Zoom a day and very kind of sophisticated things. And one of the things I'd love to see if there's a future shutdown is the private sector kind of stepping up to kind of support public school teachers. But on the flip side, some of the the, the less advantaged schools have been actually going low tech and just photocopying out packages and delivering them once a week, having no online interaction at all. So, I mean, there's huge differentials, even in a kind of very privileged country like Australia. The other thing which I've also seen, well, two things, schools being flexible, the best schools being flexible, not kind of assuming that everyone's on the same time frame and same synchronicity, Um, but also the lack of conversation about data privacy and child protection, technology, governments and accountability. I mean, those are things I think that we really do need to get our heads around well, have schools been coping in Germany, Felicitas? Is there anything else to add that we've not covered already? I think one bit that, or maybe that I've observed in, in Germany is a real juncture between the public discussion, the media, the talk shows, and the practices in schools. And there was one of the big German talk shows, Hart aber fair, tough but fair. Um, they had, you know, a bunch of politicians on and the teachers and the parents. And it started, the whole thing was oriented at saying, teachers have not done enough, teachers have not done enough. Germany has messed up because Germany's not digitalized enough over the past few years. These are discussions that have been happening in Germany for a long time. Germany feels in these public discussions very much like, Germany's not the forerunner it should be. It's lagging behind. This is big discussion about lagging behind. And it's specifically, I try to turn that around and say, you know, Germany is a forerunner in those data privacy and data protection discussions that you two have just mentioned. They've not rushed in to buy into lots of these commercial platforms because of the data privacy and data protection and data security issues. We know from Sweden, Thomas Hummel was talking about Sweden, that um, lots of schools are very autonomous and most schools are working with Google classroom google education in germany almost no schools work with google education it's not it's not acceptable it's not it's not okay so that there's one thing so there's this teacher bashing going on in the public and it's not digital enough it's not teacher not teachers not doing enough but on the other side when we have a few projects research projects where we've been accompanying schools for a few years and i was talking to the school teachers and some head teachers and things and what they're reporting is the teachers have done a massive amount of preparation in the background they've been you know doing stuff all weekend to try and get things ready and they're specifically orienting sometimes to those kids that are at danger of being lost the families that need more support so in the public sphere the parents are speaking who have a certain cultural 
whatever background so that they're speaking in the public spaces. Those are the kids that the teachers are perhaps not orienting to as much because there's an assumption that they can deal with it themselves. That's one thing. And we, we've really seen is that schools, parents are supporting the schools that communicate their decisions. If a school says, look, we're trying to make sure we're keeping all kids on board, that's why we're not talking to you as, as much, then the parents are happy to not be talked to. This, this attempt to, as you said earlier as well, to reach the schools, to, to reach the students, sorry, to, to meet them once a week, students that don't have the technology, the parent, the teachers, sorry, are cycling there, um, sitting on a park bench at one and a half metres distance and handing over a packet of paper and talking through the week and saying, you know what's happening at home. That sort of connection isn't visible in the public sphere as much as that some parents are not happy because they're just getting printouts. For the second part of the conversation, we took a bit of time reflecting on some of the big technology success stories of the lockdown. We discussed three types of technology. First, the big new platforms such as Zoom and Microsoft Teams. Second, the rise of direct-to-consumer edtech such as Khan Academy. And third, the excitement around bottom-up user-generated content such as TikTok. These are all suddenly household names in the world of education. But what do these technologies tell us about the changing nature of digital education in the pandemic? The example of Zoom's maybe quite interesting um, because I think it illustrates perhaps something of the enormous compromises that have to be made when these new platforms are sort of rolled out into new spaces like into you know educate or into education practices at the, the kind of scale that they have been. Clearly, on the one hand, Zoom is you know been offered for free and it, it's enabled interaction to occur um, between teachers and students, but it's obviously come with huge privacy issues um, that, that others have been tracking in, 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 in detail. And it proved highly hackable as well with the you know, appalling examples of racist Zoom bombing uh, and so on in um, universities. But at the same time, as I understand it, some of that controversy over Zoom did and pushback uh, against it did lead the company to have to address some of the, the shortcomings of the platform and, and 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 make some effort to kind of you know respond to to those problems and, and respond to the, the the outrage of many of the the consumers and customers who were suddenly forced into a position where they had to use this thing. Mm. Yeah, it, it certainly struck me as a case study in how what seems to be a huge platform is incredibly shonky. I don't think they seem to have thought about privacy to begin with. And even now they're doing things like um, introducing pay, pay for end-to-end encryption. So you actually have to pay to be private. So it's really interesting how these things are, they look kind of multinational and, and huge platforms, but they are just very, very kind of... Uh, kind of making it up as they go along. I mean, Felicitas, you wrote in the TechLash zine, which I put up earlier, about how schools were using technology to kind of do the same things that they did previously. I guess Zoom would be an example of this. Yeah, Zoom is one way of sort of translating something that we always did, which is a certain way of communicating in a whole class setting. Zoom lets us translate that into the online setting. But it, it does always change it a little bit. And that's it's like the intention is to translate something so we all feel comfortable. The teacher's talking, just giving instructions. Students are talking among themselves, etc. But at the same time, what we're seeing 
we zoom are all with the alternatives, alternative video conferencing systems that are also being used a lot is um, that the students are often, school students, university students are often without their video. So they're muted and the video's off and they've actually got Facebook going at the same time where they're chatting mm. with their friends at the same time, which enables a kind of chat to each other, which was also always in classrooms a little bit, but it's different now. It's actually more freed up, it's open. A thing that's important in Germany also is these open source alternatives to Zoom. And a lot of the critique oriented at Zoom was because it was it got so big so quickly. And there was some like Jitsi's the open source alternative, which mm. looks almost the same, works almost the same. And if it had become so big and so successful, it would have also got the same sort of criticism that Zoom had got. It would have been it would have been a place for racist Zoom bombing and Jitsi bombing, whatever as well. But I think there's an interesting discussion there about the open source alternatives and what they need to be able to work at scale and what Zoom, the investment that's behind Zoom that makes it work better. Yeah, yeah. And also, as you say, I think the nobody was prepared for this. Um, and so it's really interesting to see how it all of a sudden it has scaled up. I mean, Khan Academy is another really interesting example, moving away from these big platforms in a way. I mean, Khan Academy in a way, I guess, is indicative of the rise of direct cons consumer technology. I mean, Ben, you study the ed tech market quite a lot, and Khan has been a force in ed tech for quite a while. I mean, what manoeuvrings have they managed to leverage from the lockdown? And, and what does this tell us about this rise of direct-to-consumer ed tech that everyone's getting so excited about? Um, I think we've seen a huge surge of interest in this idea of consumer ed tech. And, um, that's been reflected in sort of investor enthusiasm in, in this space and uh, a kind of dawning realisation that the edtech market into the future is likely to depend on parents primarily and perhaps students themselves, particularly in relation to higher education. So we're in this position now where the understanding is that schools and universities in the next couple of years are likely to experience extraordinary austerity. Um, so they might have deals in place with providers uh, unlikely or less likely to be making um, sort of lucrative deals with with new providers as they you know uh, understandably have to deal with making cuts and so on so that the, the market moves to to those parents and students who in the short term may be experiencing new hybrid models but in the long term may find that these are actually attractive kind of supplements um, to the existing kind of provision they're getting from state education so I think there's a direct consumer model, points perhaps to an expansion of what people have previously called the kind of shadow education market of private supplementary tutoring and so on. So there's been a huge increase in tutoring apps and platforms in China. Um, I believe Wan Fudao um, received a $1 billion venture capital investment in the midst of the pandemic as it's Customer numbers had, had absolutely exploded. That particular um, platform, OneFoodOut, uh, claims that it's using artificial intelligence. So it's gathering information about its users and then adaptively responding um, in a you know, supposedly intuitive machine learning based way. So this consumer ed tech space is interesting because of the way it kind of shifts the kind of market focus and because it helps to bring in new kinds of techniques like AI, which are 
perfectly suited to the idea of moulding around uh, the individual. And the individual now, of course, is more and more going to be at home and needing the kind of assistance of that private supplementary tutor who is now a robot. And if we're all individual consumers online consuming education, as soon as you go back into school, it undermines the idea of what you're doing in a kind of public education classroom. And it's also really interesting to think about the connections here. Khan is not just one man standing in front of a video giving maths lessons. I mean, it's a multi, multi-billion dollar business. And I guess it's interesting to see where they've got funding on through, through the crisis. And Google seemed to be kind of pumping money into Khan. Uh, can't use Google Cloud products. So there's this kind of network, which I think we, we can get onto later. And I can remember all the criticisms of Khan a few years ago that the actual pedagogic quality was terrible, that some of the content was wrong. All those discussions seem to have been kind of forgotten about now. And all of a sudden, you know, this is the big new thing. Um, you, you mentioned a few others. I mean, Felicitas, I know, were you talking about Zern Maths earlier um, as a kind of possibly a good example of how these things might be uh, disruptive in a good way? One of the interesting things about Khan Academy is also the kind of content that they have been pushing, spreading these last the, over these last couple of months. And you look, they've got a lot of, you know, they've got the part of the website that's specifically for Corona, for COVID related, and they've got schedules, day plans. And like Ben said earlier, in the whole schedule, the day plan, it's really half hour, you know, plans. And the family is built in there the whole time that there should be a family member assisting the kid working on this stuff. And what they've also got, though, is... Basically, it's educational TV, like back from the 70s, a lot of what they're doing. And this is one of the first things that Germany did as well. As soon as the schools closed, all the state television put on their old educational TV stuff all morning long so the kids had something to do. It's also a really interesting kind of educational technology. But in CERN maths, for me, it's, a, it's only the math part, and it's actually designed as a hybrid way of teaching maths with digital technology. It's been going for a couple of years now just based in the US basically. It's a not-for-profit. They've got a lot of money, a lot of funding to, to try this up, but it's a not-for-profit, so they're not paying back investors. And one of their things that is very important is they embedded in their normal, you know, normal software before COVID, the idea of half the class working individually on their laptops or whatever devices and half the class being in a small group with teachers together. So it was always part of the technology is that the teacher works together with a small group of kids in intensely person to person and then the kids would swap you know those half would work on the maths and the computers and the other half would be the teacher and that that's one thing they've done where it's really the the social and the technological together and another thing they've done though right from the start is to think about which students are represented in this maths what kind of maths problems do we have maths is one of the most ideological kinds of input you can have in schools because you've got to have the maths problem puzzle you've got to put three plus two into words so what kind of puzzles and they've deliberately tried from the start to have puzzles which talk speak to all sorts of different lifestyles and family constellations and not just sort of white middle class heteronormative images which are often used in 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 mass puzzles but it sounds like it's actually been designed with some kind of forethought and you know, thinking about learning and teaching which is rare for some of these platforms and i wonder to what extent it's because it's a not-for-profit it's got a different set of priorities baked into it not to make a big distinction between commercial and non-commercial but just to think about what that means if someone's coming from a not-for-profit background 
what they're writing into the software. Simon, we're going to talk about design later on as one of the key things we can take forward. It's just interesting you mentioned educational television, because the third thing I wanted to talk about was TikTok. There's been great excitement over TikTok. I'm Generation X. So I've got no business on TikTok whatsoever, but I understand it's been quite the thing over lockdown. Homemade peer-to-peer -peer education content, 15-second videos. So recently announced plans to commission hundreds of experts and institutions to provide educational content to the platform. Felicitas, what's so great about TikTok? I mean, and other alternatives. Is it really user-generated content and, you know, bottom-up stuff? There's just so much crazy stuff on TikTok, which I think is, is fun to see. And the dance moves and stuff like this. But what what we've really what we've really observed when when kids are starting to use TikTok and when they're doing it themselves is this idea of the challenges, having a challenge and working things through, and that it's there's a low barrier to participation in this kind of thing. Lots of kids have smartphones of whatever kind of smartphones they have, so they can make their own videos and they're producing something and they're experiencing themselves as producers in that moment, and to do something for the school, something which is relevant. That's a thing that I think is really exciting about TikTok. But on the other hand, I mean, it's a huge multi-billion dollar Chinese-owned company. And, you know, it, it, it was trying to monetize its hashtag talk edu, edu um, content way before coronavirus. So, I mean, it's really interesting in terms of user-generated content that you've still got this big behemoth behind it. Yeah. I mean, Ben, what do yeah. you make of the appearance of TikTok as a kind of major player now in this uh, education market? Yeah, I was completely intrigued and in actual fact really enamored of the idea that this was being used by, you know, apparently millions of students to share study tips and create their own videos and share them with their peers and so on. Uh, and the, the the numbers that were being talked of in terms of views on the learn on TikTok uh, hashtag were really quite eye-watering. Um, yeah, these sort of lovely ideas about what can actually be achieved through forms of participatory social media-based sort of learning, you know, kinds of things that many people working in this digital education space have been exploring for years and both pointing out you know what are some of the problems and issues that arise here but what are also some of the, the really strong potential and you know it sort of demonstrates these kind of bottom-up here learning cultures but at the same time when they announced um, last week that the learn on TikTok hashtag would be turned more specifically into a kind of dedicated educational channel and that they would be hiring loads of strategic content partners um, to develop new content that kind of completely changes the model it sort of emphasizes celebrities you know in the UK we have people like Rachel Riley who's a well-known sort of celebrity mathematician we have actors and so on um, to to attempt to draw in a larger audience and one of the I think it was the general European manager of TikTok specifically said we hope that this will be more appealing to advertisers, advertisers who are interested in um, the youth market, but who have previously been a bit off put by the kind of the edgy feel uh, of, of TikTok, um, Kellogg's, those kind of brands and so on. So we're in an interesting position where we have really sort of nice ideas about user generated peer learning cultures and so on. Um, at the same time as we have merging ideas about education basically as a kind of vehicle for the advertising industry. Yeah, and if there's one way to make social media not edgy, it's get schools and education involved. And Felicitas, <laughs> you, you wrote in your TechLash article about other kind of more probably genuine bottom-up things. You were talking about uncourses and bar camps and some of the things that have been going on in Germany that really do seem to be quite more grassroots and more communal. 
this is this is exactly the point whenever anything just to come back to TikTok for a little moment Facebook was never a grassroots thing, but when students were talking a lot on Facebook, that was where the communication was happening. Then schools and educators started to use Facebook as a way of reaching kids in their own space and kids left Facebook, you know, and then TikTok, they were doing it and it was their thing. When it starts to be embedded now with advertising and with teachers giving TikTok activities, they're going to leave TikTok again at this movement. In Germany, there's there's been a lot of... There's a couple of hashtags on Twitter, Twitter and and these where there's a lot of exchange among teachers on what sort of what sort of ideas they can do. One one um, Twitter person asked for um, asked teachers, okay, give me one activity that's not a printed out worksheet. And there was a whole bunch of answers to this, which I think is really interesting because none, almost none of them were what we would call edtech or what we have been calling edtech over the last few years. It was like a, you know, an airplane challenge where you have to uh, make an airplane, fold it up, let it fly, measure the mass, take video, upload the video to the school server or send it by email or whatever. Okay, the, maybe the learning management system's legacy edtech, but all of that, it's a video, it's a camera, it's, a, it's, it's doing something physical in your own space and then sharing that. And there was bar, bar camps and courses by, set up by volunteers or set up by a small set of people who are also, I mean, their job is also to offer teacher training later. So it's not completely dissociated from a commercial side, but it's by no means these big platforms and these big actors. It's like, you know, for people who have a, their own startup where they offer teacher education. And they've been doing a lot of online open space sessions come, with three hours and a half-baked idea, and we'll help you at by the end of the three hours have something you can do in your classroom. For the next part of the conversation, we wanted to look forward and think about what is around the corner as we progress through this pandemic. The basic question that we're tackling here is what shifts and changes might be occurring under the guise of post-pandemic new normal. So I asked Ben and Felicitas what trends, movements, coalitions and ideas they were beginning to pick up on. I suppose my attention was first drawn to all the various commercial organisations, Google Classroom and Microsoft and Amazon and so on, that seemed to be, you know, take, trying to take a slice of the pandemic pie in schools, as it were. But very quickly became apparent that actually what we're really looking at here are vast um, coalitions and alliances of all sorts of multi-sector types of actors of various sizes, which have, in the context of the of of COVID nineteen, have coalesced and seem to very quickly negotiate a whole bunch of shared aims and aspirations, which have both short-term and long-term trajectories. In the first instance, it's all about enabling access and reducing the potential for widening inequalities and improving equity and so on, you know, in alliances that include actors as diverse as UNESCO and the World Bank and the OECD and Google and Microsoft and Zoom and Khan Academy and a whole bunch of other NGOs and civil society organizations and so on. There's something really interesting going on, if we think from a kind of policy perspective about these new kind of 
policy networks that have formed in a specific context out of a specific set of you know relatively short-term concerns but which are then becoming the kind of base from which to set out a whole bunch of longer-term reformatory aspirations so an organization like the OECD which is a partner in this big UNESCO coalition is very strongly promoting its vision, which it's had for a long time, of a kind of digitally enabled, uh, reformed set of education systems which are much better configured to delivering the skills required in a digital economy and so on. And it's now in alliance with Google and Microsoft who talk very similar kind of language, who seem to now have you know, very similar long-term reformatory aims um, and have set out the kind of the organizational networks and in fact the technical networks to enable that to happen because they've managed to get google g suite and microsoft 365 you know embedded in places which it probably otherwise never would have gone to it's you know um, these infrastructures have eaten into new spaces new territories so there's a there's a, a really intriguing policy angle which needs following up for for, for years to come here that you know I think the, the the future of education in many respects is being crafted into being you know very contingently um, through these new organizational alliances and through the kind of technical systems that they're expanding into all sorts of new spaces including into people's homes absolutely and also the obligation that these actors have to actually stick around i mean things like alt school for example as soon as they kind of get bored or work out it's not profitable you pivot but then you just leave a whole bunch of students and parents and families in the lurch i'm um, moving on to another thing i mean felicitas i was really interested that you were talking before about design um it was really interesting that example you gave of, of the maths platform i mean what kind of design issues are you seeing kind of coming up that might give us hope yeah I have to start with the not hope, though, if I'm thinking about design, like the, the exactly the kind of things Ben was talking about. There's, there's a specific design behind those. And if we've got at the moment, maybe three different kinds of design orientation that are being embedded into the whole education system. And the one is this kind of infrastructure stuff, the, the, the Google Classroom, the Microsoft Office. It's like background and it's it's not des it's designed to do stuff you always did in the digital space, mostly, but it's then got this huge power to be to be unfolding in there. Then the, the second, the second kind of design is where things are really about relations, about communication, about making sure those kids don't get lost, some finding some way to keep connecting. And in Estoslo was telling me in Mexico, 90% of teachers are using WhatsApp to discuss. WhatsApp has become an educational technology because that's the low barrier way to contact everybody, to get everyone, to get everyone involved in the communication. And that's like the core. It's almost like a, it's it's suddenly this whole connected learning, the connected learning alliance, connected learning kind of a way of understanding education as the interests of the student plus the relationships plus the opportunities to translate something. These three, this has become like for many parts of education now, I think in lots of different parts of the world, the basic, this is like, this is what we do. And that wasn't the case before Corona. So there's the, the design elements going in behind there are thinking about relations and communication and an interaction. And this is something that I've described previously, like in the last few years, it's like a marginal discourse that needs to become more central. Now that it is more central, it's like, right, but wait a minute, what's completely missing from this discussion 
of the communication interaction, which focuses on individuals and on classrooms and on these sort of focused settings. What's completely missing is, is a kind of design justice agenda. And there's a lot of exciting research on design justice, the Design Justice Network, Sasha costanza Chok, who's just written a new book about this design justice thing, where, where, where the idea is, how do you design participatory ways, sort of social, technical, ecological networks or learning settings, educational processes, which, which center those users who are usually marginalized and usually not thought about. And the Zen example using, you know, embedding diverse people into the images is just one tiny aspect, but there's so many different ways that we need to change the materials and the learning, the learning apps and the software that are being used to include students who are not usually thought of when these are being designed. Um, the problem is that these this sort of design, you can't just do it like this. Microsoft and Google, they can just come right, okay, there's a pandemic, we can jump in and we can do something. This participatory design, you can't do from today till tomorrow, suddenly make new stuff. Finally, then we finish the conversation with a sort of reality check. We're trying to make sense of all of this in the middle of what is clearly a huge global upheaval. But I was wondering how we look back on this in 10, 20 years time. Is this truly a once in a generation game changing moment for education and the ways in which digital technologies are used? So I asked Ben and Felicitas to finish with a bit of prediction. Is anything going to fundamentally alter? Two answers. And the one is, there's been a few surveys in Germany of teachers, you know, what are you doing now? What impact does it make? And like 85% say there's so much more digital education and more than half say I'm definitely going to use more technology later. And and there's an aspect in Germany that the access, which was never there before, is now there, whether it's do donated laptops or there's been some funding for people who have benefits so they can buy hardware. That access, the hardware is there. So the decision in what direction it goes in the future can now be made on a different basis. So the question is what decisions are made about what kind of future we want? And that's the first thing. The second thing for me is though, it's become quite clear that crises are what make change. And maybe this pandemic was just one crisis. This is something that we, theoretically we've known this already, crises are what lead to change, but now you can really see it. And what we can imagine in the future is there are future crises are coming, ecological crises, different crises, and each crisis is going to have some sort of unexpected leap, unexpected jump. And we wrote a, we wrote a paper last year imagining three futures. And in none of these three scenarios did we imagine some sort of crisis. When I look back now and I think, how did we not think about some sort of rupture? They were all three futures which sort of flowed in different directions from today. So if we have a crisis now, what sort of who can react to a crisis quickly? And this is the thing of slow and, and quick from before. Who is able to provide a quick fix, a quick solution? And which kinds of and that's like Google, it's like the big ones, Microsoft, etc. It's also the big, the big all sorts of different corporations and different levels who've who've been working slowly in the background and now can offer a quick solution to the sudden new situation. Which means that if we want to develop a different kind of a different kind of future for education, one where convivial educate, convivial technology is, is in the foreground, respectful design, these sort of keywords, then we need to now make sure people are in position to develop a long-term strategy so they're ready for the next 
crisis, which will come at some point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in Australia, we had a summer of bushfires, which we thought was a crisis. And we didn't do much about that. Hopefully, after this crisis, we'll be in a more of a crisis mindset. That's a really interesting way to think about it. Ben, is this a big tipping point or is it the equivalent of the Millennium Bug and we'll all forget about it in a few years' time? I think we're seeing enough signals to speculate that you know, we could see some fairly long-lasting and significant changes to education. Um, I don't think it's as simple as just assuming some kind of commercial takeover. There's been some you know, nice explorations of Naomi Klein's idea of disaster capitalism and a kind of pandemic shock doctrine. And, you know, maybe we see that reflected in some of the stuff that's going on in the States around getting Bill Gates in to reimagine education in New York, you know, rip down the schools. You don't need them when you can do everything the Gates way. Um, you know, this kind of moment of crisis is an opportunity to outsource education. And, you know, maybe that will happen in a limited way. But at the same time, you know, we need to recognize that in that Gates example, for example, you know, there was pretty immediate pushback. And there's a long history with the Gates Foundation of a lot of their stuff never really working, um, you know, often with fairly devastating results, um, but also of campaign groups and educators and teacher unions and so on forming, you know, really quite powerful bottom-up coalitions to push back against these kind of tech-wealth-based imaginaries that are seeking to change education to kind of conform to a particular, perhaps, corporate view. So we might see, well, I'd hope we'd see pushback. I mean, Mm. you know, maybe not blind pushback without considering what the benefits of a bit of a rethink of, you know, public education has never been perfect and certainly wasn't, you know, four months ago. But I'd like to think that we'll see, you know, the emergence of these kinds of groups, like perhaps we've seen in in New York, that say, hang on, you know, actually, we've got a better idea. We've got a better view. We've got a better future. And maybe it involves, you know, a better sense of respect for teachers and a commitment, as Felicitas said, to forms of justice and so on, that, you know, actually, we don't want to roll out systems that for many appear to be highly surveillant and potentially discriminatory. And I'm optimistic we that, that we will see that. I mean, 